welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, and today Bruce Feldman is joining me over the phone somewhere in the state of Washington. Where are you exactly? I'm in a town that I've been warned, do not speed. Colfax, Washington does not play around, apparently. If you go a mile over the speed limit, they're pulling you over. So I'm on my way uh, from Spokane, where I stayed last night, to go see Mike Leach. Fox wanted me to do a piece, so I'm up here. They have a big game against Colorado. So before I go to TCU for my game, I'm going to see Lee. It's going to be interesting. And I assume that bright, sunny weather welcomed you when you got when you got to Spokane, Washington. Man, I was this morning. I was driving through snowfall. I don't want to call it a blizzard because I grew up in upstate New York, so I'm used to, to you know snowy weather. But it just surprised me because this is part of it where there's snow all over the ground, and then you drive another ten miles. And it's basically to rain, but it's you know it's in the 30s. It was 32 degrees when I got in my car, and um, so part of the story is Leach and I are going to go do his walk to work, which is almost four miles, and uh, so we're going to be walking through some crappy weather. That is so foreign to us here in, in California at this point in time, but it is that time of year in other parts of the country. Um, first of all, we have a, a really interesting guest later. Uh, you know, people always hear about when it comes to coaching searches and they hear about these search firms and they're very mysterious and nobody really knows what they do. So we're happy to get on one of the most established uh, figures in that field who is Jed Hughes. He's with the firm Corn Ferry. They have done a lot of high profile coaching searches. They packed most notably Michigan when it hired Jim Harbaugh, Texas when it hired both Charlie Strong and Shaka Smart. So we're going to get to that interview, but first I want to uh, real quick hit on the playoff rankings that came out Tuesday night. We kind of figured what ended up happening, we kind of figured would happen. Not that people aren't any less ticked off about it with Michigan and Clemson not really dropping uh, out of the top four after their losses this past weekend. Louisville 5, Washington 6, Wisconsin 7, Penn State 8. What stands out to you the most there? To me, Stu, the thing that jumped out at me first was there are four Big Ten teams in the top eight, and the fact that Penn State has a legitimate chance to make the playoff is pretty mind-boggling. If you would think where you know, if you had said that to anybody going into the season, or said it to anybody coming out of that Michigan game, um, to me that's pretty remarkable. Now, I think just want to maybe we'll go into Louisville for a second. Louisville to me is in a very vulnerable position because they only have. You know, it looks like Florida State could be the only ranked win they have. And while they have an impressive loss, it's still a loss close at Clemson. You know, they're going to play Houston, who's a pretty good team on the road. But if they beat them, Houston's not going to be anywhere near the top 25. So I think they're, you know, they could get leapfrogged by some Pac-12 teams. Do you agree? Yeah, I've said it before, and I still feel that, you know, they're being boxed out by Clemson for one. Certainly, they're going to be boxed out by at least one Big Ten team. In terms of the Pac-12, you know, Washington's behind them now. But if Washington wins out, wins Pac-12, they would move ahead of Louisville. So, you know, if you're Louisville, you're hoping that Washington loses and that the Pac-12 champ, I mean, Washington State's still all the way down at 22. So clearly, the committee doesn't respect them that much. And if they end up winning the Pac-12, I wouldn't think they would pass, come close to passing Louisville. I don't know that Utah would either. Colorado is creeping in. They're at number 10. You know, this this raises an interesting point. I think in general, we think it's a good thing. We agree it's kind of a more sophisticated way of doing this. That The committee does look at your whole season 
and your body of work and, t and good wins and strength of schedule. But the eye test has become basically a non-factor. And Kirk Herbstreet on the ranking show, uh, he did have Louisville in his top four. And he said, at the end of the day, resume or not, they are one of three teams that I think would give a chance to beat Alabama. Ohio State was one, and I want to say Michigan was the other. I don't remember for sure. He wouldn't give Clemson a chance? I may be misquoting him, so don't, so don't forget about okay. who the third one was. It was definitely Louisville and Ohio State were two of them. So if it comes to that, and look, like you said, they could lose to Houston, and this conversation is moot, but uh, are we maybe going a little too far in the direction of resume and numbers if it gets to the point where you get to the end of the season and feel like, man, I think Louisville is better than Washington, but Washington's got the better resume. You know, so I, I didn't have a chance to listen to, to Kirby's teleconference uh, afterwards, but I do feel like there's an element of the eyeball test that works, at least for big brand schools, maybe, or at least some star power players. I look at Oklahoma. Yeah, they got the triplets. But, you know, D.D. Westbrook, he's in my eyes, been top five. They've been, they've been terrific since he's, you know, healed up his hamstring. And Baker Mayfield play well, but I don't think the defense is very good. And you look at the resume, who have they beaten that makes you say that's a top 10 team, given that they lost, you know, they have one loss to an unranked team. The other one was a blowout loss at home against Ohio State. How do you make the case for them to be that high? Funny you should say that. That is exactly what I asked Kirby Hocutt on the teleconference, because when I saw West Virginia flash up on the screen at 8-1, and one, below three loss USC, now look, West Virginia, we know, hasn't played the schedule of the team, other one-loss teams. But that seems a little absurd to me. That seems like it makes you wonder whether they've watched that team play, realize that they have a pretty good defense. And like you said, there's a bit of hypocrisy there because if you're going to hold them to that standard, why aren't you holding two-loss Oklahoma to the same standard? Neither of them has beaten the top 25 teams. So here is the explanation, first about why West Virginia is as low as they are. Uh, from Kirby Hocutt, the committee spent a great deal of time this week talking about West Virginia, and I think at this point in time, West Virginia having only played one game against a current uh, CFP Top 25 team, which was a loss for them, that was Oklahoma State, and that's what we spent a great deal of time debating, discussing is the fact that the quality win is not there yet for West Virginia. Their only Top 25 team was a loss to Oklahoma State, so I followed up and said, what's the difference between them and Oklahoma, who's sitting up in the Top 10 and has two losses and, and no Top 25 win, and he said... Oklahoma is a team that has a tremendous offense. They've continued to bounce back from two early season losses. They're on a seven-game winning streak. The committee believes that Oklahoma is deserving of that nine spot and still looking at West Virginia to get a quality win. What a double standard. <laughs> I mean, Let me jump in on that point, though. You know, I've done a couple of Texas Tech games. I do think this might be an example of Kirby Hocutt having to address something he may not truly believe. It's a good point. Kirby Hocutt saw... Texas Tech, his, his school, which has a very explosive offense, get completely dominated in ways that they hadn't by anybody else by West Virginia and their defense. Uh, you know, look, West Virginia is going to have a chance to prove that they're better than Oklahoma this week. They haven't beaten Oklahoma since they've been in the Big 12, but I believe they play better defense than the Sooners do. They'll have a chance to prove it. But, again, I wonder if this is a case where Kirby knows West Virginia has a very good defense uh, and has pretty good receivers. It's not like they don't have any firepower. They have a good offensive line. It's more experienced than Oklahoma's. I'm not saying it's, it's that much better. But it's not like they don't, have, they don't have some talent. So I wonder if he's thinking, you know what, that's the, that's the, uh, 
the tenor of the room and I need to reflect it. That's a good point. Uh, in fact, last night, furious West Virginia fans, uh, you know, what are the usual conspiracy theories? ESPN's behind this. Um, they're, they're the committee is trying to protect the SEC and the Big Ten. And I pointed out, you know, the chairman of the committee is a Big 12 AD. Uh, I would just like to have heard a little better reasoning than that because you can't tell me that you're, the sole reason West Virginia is so low is no top 25 wins and then turn around and say that Oklahoma is that high because they have such a tremendous offense. Uh, like you said, it will become moot this weekend, but it's interesting because, you know, here we are, and, and you know, I don't think anybody's more ticked about the uh, Michigan and Clemson not dropping than West Virginia fans because they're sitting there with the same record going, why can't we move up? Uh, I don't think, I, because of all this, I just don't see, you know, you don't want to say never. I just don't see how any of these big 12 teams ultimately make it because the committee clearly, uh, with the emphasis on top 25 wins, you know, the most that anybody's going to get is two. If Oklahoma beats West Virginia and Oklahoma State, they will finish with two top 25 wins. West Virginia can only get one this week. Uh, Oklahoma State has one, and they can get one more. So how do you, how are you going to stack up when you're talking about, uh, as they pointed out last night, Michigan has three top 10 wins. Uh, Clemson has four top 25 wins, or three top 25 wins. Uh, Ohio State, three top 25 wins, chance to add a fourth. Uh, I just don't see how the Big 12 can crack the top four. No, it's, it's, I go back to my Penn State point a little when you said that, like Michigan has three top ten wins. If you had told somebody, look at the schedule that, that Michigan has right now, now granted, you know, Michigan State, played Michigan State, nobody would have thought they had been as, as dreadful as they've been. But who would have thought Colorado and Penn State? And, I'm, and after what was, I didn't think Wisconsin would be able to survive the gauntlet they had, but at least they've been, you know, very strong the last, you know, a few years or last the decade, just the idea that, wow, Colorado and Penn State are, are legitimate top 10 wins. And, they, and Michigan beat the heck out of Penn State. It wasn't even close. So um, it's very interesting to see how the season unfolds compared to what we think it's going to be and what we think is going to matter. Well, and, and Michigan, the, the perfect example of that is you looked at Michigan's schedule before the season and their non-conference schedule, you know, Everybody mocks Washington's, and rightfully so. Michigan's didn't look much different. Three home games, and the only Power 5 uh, opponent was going to be a Colorado team that had been in the basement of the Pac-12 for five years. So it turns out, here we are in November, and Colorado's a top-10 team, and, they, and it ends up being one of the biggest wins of the year for Michigan. Now you look at Louisville, and the counter of that would be uh, they scheduled a game at Marshall, now, Marshall has been one of the better group of five teams in the last few years. They were almost went undefeated a couple years ago. This year, not so much. This year, they are 3-7. and seven. That didn't work out for Louisville. Obviously, there was a hope that this game at Houston would be against a top 10 team, top 25 team at the very least. They're not. When they beat Florida State 63-20, they didn't know Florida State would turn around and lose to UNC. Uh, you know, they just have caught no breaks on their schedule. And so... You know, I'm sure that's frustrating for fans of those schools because they're basically being kept down for things that are completely beyond their control. So, Stu, there was an interesting story you uh, relayed to me that because I've been in the car, I have not known about that relates to Louisville. Can we just discuss this? Because it's not something I honestly expected to, you know, had thought about much until you broached it with me. Yeah, we've got a security breach in college football. We've got a, a WikiLeaks type situation here, possibly. 
Uh, Wake Forest says that at Louisville last weekend that one of their staff members found material that Louisville left behind that would indicate that they knew about plays Wake Forest was going to run in the game that they had not run all season. So there's been some sort of breach here. Either Louisville figured out a way to hack into Wake Forest's computers that may have had some plays on it, or more realistically, spies? That's what I would have thought. When you said breach, that makes it sound like emails, and obviously we've heard all this ad nauseum in the last, you know, whatever, six months. But the idea that somebody was, was you know, either scouting or relaying information, um, you know, that's something schools are always kind of concerned about. I know, you know, going out to USC a lot, you know, there's parking garages at certain places and people always looking around going, is there somebody up there looking or watching? Because you know, it wouldn't take much to relay that kind of stuff, and, and that could, could certainly help. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff when we go to walkthroughs and practices for TV where, you know, it's like off limits, you can't discuss it, and you just don't know. You know, there are certain trick plays, there are certain gadget plays, whatever, um, that could certainly help a team if, if, if they had advanced knowledge of it to prepare. To be clear, it didn't seem to help Louisville. They were losing that game 12-3, uh, to 3, I believe at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Here's Bobby Petrino's statement in response to this. I have no knowledge of the situation. We take a lot of pride in the way we operate our program. As I've stated already this season, my coaching philosophy has always been to play the game with sportsmanship. Right now our focus is on our game tomorrow at Houston and finishing the 2016 season strong. I think adding a layer to this, right, is that it is Bobby Petrino. And people are not going to give him the benefit of the doubt in a situation like this because, let's be honest, He's not displayed a great ethical track record in his past. No, and I think it adds to the intrigue of all that is just his reputation as such. So we've got some fireworks. We um, have some fireworks. We have a developing situation. It may have even changed by the time you listen to this, but um, I don't know. We could have the college version of Spygate on our hands. Yeah, uh, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. And let's turn to our guest. And it's going to sound a little different because we recorded this interview earlier in the week. Jed Hughes, Corn Ferry. All right, now to our guest, Jed Hughes, who is as plugged into the coaching search world as anybody because he's seen it from the coach side, but he's also a uh, consultant and he is at Corn Ferry and they've been involved in a lot of of high-powered searches. And Jed, we appreciate you taking this time to join us on the Audible today. Well, excited about the opportunity of uh, visiting with you and your listeners. So we're almost coming up on that time of year. Obviously, there's going to be some turnover in the college coaching ranks. And people who are following their schools or other schools' coaching searches are going to hear about that the school has hired uh, your firm or another firm uh, to help with the search. Tell us a little bit what that entails. Well, first of all, I think that uh, what we do is very different than what anybody else does in the business. Uh, I say that because... Of our experience, we've been at it for 45 years, had the opportunity to work with uh, seven Hall of Fame coaches, four in college and three in the NFL, and uh, then I've had the opportunity to develop my relationships and continue my relationships with people in the National Football League and in the intercollegiate circles. What do you think the biggest misconception about what search firms and what you guys do are out there these days? Well, you know, it's hard for me to speculate on, you know, what misconceptions are. As I said, people do it differently. We only take on one search at a time. So 
so we're never competing for the talent pool. Other firms will have multiple searches going on. We will not do that. We will focus all our attention on who that client is and give them that type of uh, concierge level service that you would expect if you went to the Four Seasons or the Ritz Carlton. So is the first step in, in terms of when a school hires you, I mean, are you kind of over the course of the year starting to identify certain candidates that you're going to start recommending to schools or does that process start once that specific school hires you? Well, I think we're always looking at candidates and we're always looking at the population. When we begin a search, we don't ever know who the candidate's going to be because we have to sit down and through rigorous um, assessment develop the job spec. Once we form the spec and get agreement, then we have an opportunity to be able to uh, look at the candidate pool, uh, look at people that may fit, and then you know, do the most important thing, which is to understand whether or not they are a fit. And that's done basically because of these relationships that we formed that we're able to you know, get information about people that other people usually can't get. You often hear a coach say, oh, I was never contacted, but usually that means the agent was involved. Is this kind of a day-to-day thing where you guys are acting as the middleman? I mean, I would imagine with a lot of the candidates, there's crossover for other jobs you've either worked with or they're on your radar. I mean, as I think I mentioned earlier, you're yourself a former football coach. So isn't the vetting process maybe for one candidate? If it's at one school, you probably are pretty comfortable with what you know about them if you're, if you're presenting them at a different school search? Well, it, it, could, it could depend in terms of what some of the characteristics are that you're looking for that you might not have looked at. So I, I don't think there's a universal answer on that. I think it's case by case. We're seeing schools firing their coaches earlier than ever. LSU fired their coach after four games this season. A couple others, you know, have known most of the year that they're going to have an opening, and it was even more so last year. Um, what steps can your firm do for a school before the end of the season when you know they can actually kind of formally go out and hire these guys well first of all um you know depending on the landscape each year it varies depending on what the competition is going to be for uh potential head coach candidates therefore uh being able to uh really understand the spec get the alignment get the reference checks get all those things done so on day one you can hit the road with all you, with your strategy outlined and ready to go. From, you know, as you said, we had LSU open earlier. There's a few other schools. Uh, from your perspective, just as an observer of the market, do you think this will be lighter in terms of turnover than there has been in the past few years this winter? Well, it's changed. You know, I think three, four years, weeks ago, it looked like there were going to be more changes than maybe may happen. And, um, I think, you know, it may not be, you know, a, a big year for the real power schools. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Coach Ogeron is, uh, is is getting his team to perform. It, it looks like a higher level, a more emotional level, and um, he may be the logical successor plus he's an alum of the school. Right, and certainly there's some other schools like Auburn that early in the season were rumored to be maybe going in that direction. Now they're not. So it is interesting that that after all the kind of early season hot seat chaos, there may not be that many power jobs coming open. 
Um, well, let's go back and look at a couple examples of, of what your firm has done. I mean, obviously one that stands out that, that was, you know, one of the most closely watched searches was when Michigan hired Jim Harbaugh. And I think, I think it's interesting to get your perspective here because from us on the outside, not knowing the details, it would have seemed, well, you know, and I, I don't mean this to be um, insulting, just like this is the kind of the public reaction. What do they need a search firm for? Everybody knows they're going to go after Jim Harbaugh and everybody knows Jim Harbaugh went to Michigan. What behind the scenes does that entail? The interim athletic director, Jim Hackett, was uh, very instrumental also in, uh, in Jim coming to Michigan because Coach Harbaugh was really looking at who is going to be the leader, who is he going to report to, and Jim was a former Michigan man. So there was a relationship and a trust based on that, and uh, Jim had been a very successful business executive sitting on the board of you know, three Fortune 500 companies, and just has a, uh, a relaxing, genuine, uh, ethical way about the way he does things. And at, and at the same time, he had a new president, so there was a lot of stuff unknown going on, and you still had the NFL that was aggressively recruiting uh, Coach Harbaugh, trying to land him. I mean, you had the job in Oakland open, and he was living in the Bay Area. So the uh, ability to be able to meet, uh, you know, to meet his level of comfort and trust. I think at the end of the day, uh, Coach Harbaugh wanted to go to an environment where he felt that he could trust the people that he was going to directly work with. And I think that the Michigan uh, situation was that opportunity for him to come home and to be celebrated, so to speak. I mean, he had the same type of reaction that LeBron did when LeBron went to Cleveland. You really see that from a, from a coaching perspective. And the interesting piece about uh, you know a search like that is the expectation. What could, if you don't get Jim Harbaugh? What's the backup plan? Not that we'd ever reveal it, but I mean, obviously, when you've got your sets uh, set high on a guy like Jim Harbaugh, anybody else people are going to see as a distant second candidate. So is there anybody else out there that could potentially fill that void and be acceptable to the masses? So, I mean, so there's a lot of stuff going on until that thing's done. I mean, you don't know. And the negotiations of getting things done, from the standpoint of whether it be base, incentive, all those different things that go into the makeup of a coach's contract is complicated. We think of the firm identifying candidates and helping contact the candidates. Are you you're also involved in negotiating the contracts? Absolutely. And some more, some less, but obviously uh, absolutely involved. The other thing I'm curious about, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting because we're directly involved in this, but... Obviously, the media covers these coaching searches very closely, and I know, obviously, you know, we're kind of in an adversarial situation there where we're trying to get information. You guys involved in the search don't want the information to get out. Um, how frustrating is it when things do leak out, and in particular, you know, in this age of Twitter and whatnot, a lot of news, quote-unquote news, gets broken that it turns out was more somebody floating a rumor or whatnot? Well, I mean, I think you kind of keep your head down. I work for Bud Grant. Bud Grant never read a newspaper. Now, I know in this day of social media, you want to be involved in it, but you, that doesn't dictate what you do. I mean, you try to run a tight process, and 
you try to do the things necessary to uh, you know, keep it contained. But uh, you know those things those things have a life of their own. We're doing the commissioner search for Major League Baseball. Votes were coming out of the owners' meeting faster than uh, they were getting to the table. So those things happen, and you have to be able to work through them and not let them derail you. You said you worked for Bud Grant. I know you uh, were at Stanford. You were also a, a, a Michigan guy. I worked at Stanford. I worked with Jack, uh, John Ralston and then Jack Christensen, who was an NFL Hall of Famer for the Detroit Lions. Then uh, Bo Schembechler at Michigan, Terry Donahue at UCLA, uh, Bud Grant, Chuck Mill, and Tony Dungy, and I, and Joe Green were the defensive staff when I coached in Pittsburgh. Wow. The um, so it's an interesting career path. What made you What made you leave coaching to go to go do this? Well, first, I was fortunate that when I was at Stanford, I got my master's, and when I was at Michigan, I got my PhD. So, having advanced degrees, I never knew when they were going to come in handy. But after being named one of the top assistants in the National Football League in '87, uh, I went through a, a, about a year where the bottom fell out where I had always thought that I'd be, you know, a head coach coaching. Well, I got fired twice in a year. My dad died, went through a divorce. So it was like, wow, what am I going to do? Well, I decided after I was let go with the Steelers, which was really uh, devastating, I joined the Cleveland Browns. We made it all the way to the championship game, lost to Denver, got let go again. So twice in 10 months, I said, hey, I'm done. So I went on 186 interviews in three months and ended up going to work for a small consulting company that utilized my PhD, where we ran an assessment company. It did coaching assignments, it did assessment. We began working with the 49ers, the Green Bay Packers. We helped them develop some interview guides, some assessment systems, and then got into the recruiting business. So um, it, it was not by choice, but because of education, I had an opportunity to do something that, had I not had my degrees, I, you know, who knows where I'd be. I wouldn't be talking to you right now, I know that. Hmm. Jed, I just had one other question for you. Like, let's say there's a, a Power 5 job that you think is going to come open soon. How competitive is it for Corn Ferry to get the search as opposed to one of the other firms we all, you know, we hear about as well? Well, I mean, first of all, like I said, you know, our fees are three times the fees of anyone else. So if they're going to engage us, they, they, they realize that there's got to be something that differentiates us from the other people. And uh, you know, I think that uh, we've been able to prove that, you know, we've done a, you know, a really strong job of getting the alignment right. I mean, if you look at the NFL right now, Carroll, Andy Reid, um, Bill O'Brien, Dan Quinn, all four guys that we've recruited in the last five years, and all of them have been in the playoffs once won a Super Bowl. So I, I think uh, we've got a pretty strong track record. Well, we know you can't divulge any specifics about this coming uh, coaching carousel, so we will uh, we will just kind of sit back and eagerly await to find out who you guys end up involved with and follow that search as a, all the college coaching searches. And Jed, we can't thank you enough. We really appreciate you taking time to come on Audible. Thanks for including me and uh, good luck going forward. Thanks, Jed. 
All right, we'll get back to the podcast in a second, but I have a question for you. Guys, have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? How awful was that? Even if you found it in five minutes, if you're like me, your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster. Financially, emotionally, even physically, that could take years to unwind. That's why you can help protect yourself with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, you get protection from a company that's been in this business for over 20 years, one that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialists will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Guard at identityguard.com slash podcast. That's identityguard.com slash podcast. Plus, we are very pleased to welcome back Books as a sponsor. I know Bruce and I have both used it to send flowers and can attest to what a great service it is. If you're looking for something nice to celebrate a landmark moment or show appreciation for an everyday gesture, you should send a book. A book is a bouquet, simplified. Let me explain further. The Books company starts with beautiful flowers that are chemical-free and sourced from eco-friendly, sustainable farms. Their flowers can be enjoyed longer than other companies because they aren't cut until you order them and they arrive just a few days later. Compare that to nearly three weeks like you're going to get somewhere else. Plus, prices start in mere 40 bucks, and there are no hidden fees or unnecessary upsells. The price you see is the price you pay. And if you register with your email, they'll even offer free delivery on weekdays. Guys, they're making this as easy as possible for you. Books makes the perfect gift for any holiday, occasion, or just because. And right now, Audible listeners can save $15 off. That's great. $15 off. Just go to books.com slash audible. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com slash audible. Okay, we're going to do some emails. A lot of emails. You guys sent us some great emails this week. So, Rob Stone, what time is it? It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. Mailbag. All right. Bruce, since you're in the car, I guess I'm going to be reading all these emails, but um, you know, maybe give me the chance to answer some of them as well. Uh, Corey from Alabama, your conversation about the recency bias for the Heisman Trophy was a good point. Should the Heisman Trust move the award back some? Almost every major award in other sports isn't handed out until during the postseason. The voters could still vote before the bowls start to prevent postseason bias, but not immediately following the championship games. You know, Stu, we talked about this, I think, when we had Joe Tessitore on like six months ago. He's Mr. Heisman for ESPN. And I actually think it would be better to have it at the end of the season. What's the harm in having it short of it helps people, you know, promote their bowl game if they have the Heisman winner or whatever. But it's a big part of the season. I mean, maybe Vince Young would have a Heisman if that was the case. I I don't disagree, but just to play devil's advocate, if they did that, wouldn't the Heisman winner just every year be the MVP of the national championship game? Would Ezekiel Elliott, who wasn't even all-conference Big Ten as a running back when he ran wild in those three postseason games, you think he would have won it over Marcus Mariota? Uh, good question. He would have been at least second. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that, you know, because people would have just seen him dominate three straight big games. 
But Mariota was so good for so long that season that maybe he still would have won it. It would have been the highest winner last year instead of it would have been Deshaun Derek Watson. Henry. It could have been Deshaun Watson. I mean, Christian McCaffrey would have suffered probably from it. Well, he didn't win it anyway. That contradicts what I said earlier, because we've just basically said that the Heisman winner over the last two years would have been on the losing team in the national championship game. But the Heisman Trust, which runs this thing, is a very old, entrenched organization. They do things the way they do things. They don't really want to change it. Frankly, their whole year revolves around that dinner on the Monday night after the ceremony. That's basically their big event. Um, And there are some logistics involved in terms of once these guys' seasons end, they're they're gone. They're off to train for the draft. In in the case of the uh, the older guys, so I think like there's kind of a narrow window to hold that ceremony. But his point though was not to hold it after the bowls. It was to just give everybody a little bit of room to breathe. And and you know what? I would be very much for that. The deadline used to be Wednesday at six Eastern, so you could at least take a couple days, really do a deep dive and think about it. It's now Monday at six p.m. And those of us that cover the sport, that Sunday is an extremely long and busy day when the playoff pairings come out. So oftentimes, I don't have all that long to figure out what my final Heisman ballot's going to be. I would sure like a little extra time. And then, as he said, maybe it wouldn't be so much who was the best player on Championship Saturday. It's a good point. Yeah, I think it is a good point. Okay, Brian Myers, Stuart and Bruce, much like last year, Ohio State is clearly one of the four best teams in the nation, but... Might be left out. I I got to stop there. I don't think they were clearly one of the four best teams last year, but uh, at least going into the bowl games. But much like last year, they might be left out of the playoffs again. Unlike last year, however, the Big Ten championship game does not feature a pair of undefeated teams, but rather likely a pair of two lost teams. I like how everybody's just assuming now that Ohio State's going to win the Michigan game. Uh, as a Buckeye fan, who should I be rooting for in a Wisconsin-Penn State Big Ten title game? The Buckeyes better have, have a better chance to jump the Wisconsin team they beat or the Penn State team that's lower ranked. I would have to think they want Wisconsin to win the Big Ten. Why do you think that? Why do you think that? Because I actually was starting to think the other direction. Why do I think that? Because they beat them. So they would at least have that argument. With Penn State, the danger there is that you're talking about a team that would have a conference championship and a head-to-head advantage. Yeah, no, I see where you're going. Because then if Penn State loses, they're, they're a three-loss team. Then they're out of the mix. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That's, that's, I'm, I was thinking the wrong I mean, yeah, right. Wisconsin has a better resume. But, you know, look, I think Ohio State, if it wins out, is getting in regardless. They're number two now. And, yes, <laughs> TCU did once drop from third to sixth on the last week. But they're two now, and they haven't yet played their biggest game of the year. So now it's just a matter of, how would the committee handle the fact that there's a, another team out there that's the actual Big Ten champ? I thought going into Tuesday night that Wisconsin would be a no-brainer, but they're still behind Washington, who has one fewer loss, and will have a chance to play Washington State, who's ranked, and then play a ranked team from the Pac-12 South. So uh, it may be that Wisconsin could win the Big Ten and still not make it. Yeah, that's very realistic possibility. I mean... I'm very fascinated to see how the Big Ten especially unfolds. I just think that it has become the most interesting conference in college football. I agree, but I'm also very interested to see how the Pac-12 unfolds because they've got this almost, it feels like there's like a mini tournament going on down the stretch here where, you know, Washington State plays at Colorado this week, which is pretty much an elimination game, not from the conference necessarily, but nobody's going to make the playoff out of that, whoever loses that game. Uh, then you have a potential for 
uh, both the Colorado-Utah game and the Washington-Washington State games the last weekend to be playing games to the Pac-12 championship. But then you've also got this USC's just lurking around, waiting for the right dominoes to fall. And I think we can agree if they get in the Pac-12 championship game, there's a very good chance they would win the Pac-12 championship with three losses. So uh, to me, that's the most intriguing rate conference title race that remains out there. Um, do you think, let me ask you this, does it feel a little bit like this is kind of exactly what used to happen with the SEC? This whole circular thing of like, well, we think Ohio State's good and Penn State beat Ohio State, so now Penn State's in the top 10. And Yeah, I, I think you're on it because... That's the, you know I feel like I've been I've been crapping all over Nebraska the last three weeks, but Nebraska is kind of getting some of the benefit of being around that too. I mean I think Wisconsin's a really good team, and obviously they had a great non-conference win over LSU. But is there a little bit of that going on with Wisconsin that they're a two-loss team ranked so highly? Um, I don't know. I think those are all good teams, and here's what I'm hinting at. Here's what I could see happening. Everybody has come to basically to the conclusion that the Big Ten is the best conference this year. It has all these teams in the top ten. And everybody's come to the conclusion that the, L- that the SEC is mediocre this year because they don't have anybody outside of Alabama. It's going to get to bowl season, and the SEC is going to win all of those SEC Big Ten bowl games. And the SEC fans will get to play the uh, you guys were overrated all year card. Yeah, so be it then. I mean, look, so the SEC has a lot of young quarterbacks. Some of them look like they're coming of age. That probably would factor into it, too. Um, I don't know. That part of the debate, I think, is healthy for the sport. I agree. That's why I hate the whole 18 playoff thing. Uh, there would be no debate. It would be whoever wins. You know, USC gets into the Pac-12 championship wins, you're in the playoff. There'd be no really debating amongst those. You'd only be debating a couple of wild card spots and uh, – you know, debate is what makes college football great and, frankly, gives us a lot to talk about on this podcast. Thank you, Skip Mandel. I don't get it. Never mind. Oh, embrace debate. I get it. <laughs> uh, and, and thank you, college football commissioners, for continuing to hold on to a uh, system that has no objective way of getting the teams into the postseason. Uh, Matt in Raleigh, North Carolina. Stuart and Bruce, love the podcast and articles. They are part of my weekly football ritual. That's awesome. Do you think the BCS formula, but not the two-team championship component, was actually ahead of its time? We've become so obsessed with numbers and analytics now, I'm surprised there's not more clamoring for some type of statistical and analytic component to the CFP selection. I, for one, am not comfortable with sitting ADs on the committee. I know they step out of the room when their team is being discussed, but it's hard to imagine their simple presence on the committee doesn't sway some committee members. Uh, I get what he's saying, but the BCS formula itself was like phony math. I mean, they basically manipulated the thing to be whatever they wanted it to be. You know, it was computer rankings. There was formulas there that nobody, that were undisclosed, so you didn't even know what the rationale behind some of them were, right? Correct. You also had, you know, Jeff Sager's ratings are very respected, but for the purposes of the BCS, because they didn't want people running up the score, they made him and, and at least one other that had, like, capped the victory margin factor. So it's not even his real rankings. Should there be an, an analytics a component to the CFB? I mean, I can tell you that they do use them. They have a whole database full of uh, every analytic you can think of at their disposal. Whether they actually use them or pay close attention to them, I don't know. I, I think in the day, um, yeah, I mean, people are uncomfortable with committee. There's no question about that. But... 
I don't have a percentage on this, but it's still a very small percentage of the sporting public that follows analytics closely, probability, all those things. You know, ESPN keeps trying to shove FPI down everybody's throats, and I don't think most people know what that is. The FPI a couple like like a month or so ago had a old Miss team that was like barely 500. I want to say in the top 10. I mean, to me, like the FPI sounds like a ECW tag team or something. That's not unique <laughs> to FPI because Ole Miss has played such a strong schedule. They continue to stay high in Sagarin and and all of those F F. But you got to look at whether you win or lose games. Ultimately, right. I mean, you, there is no magic formula that, that would give you the four teams. Now you could say. Could it be some sort of hybrid where there's a formula and the analytics piece and it accounts for half of it and then the committee accounts for the other half? Uh, possibly. I just think at the end of the day, this has to be something that the average college football fan can can digest. And I think that's part of why the BCS alienated people beyond just there's only two teams in the championship game and rarely could you agree on those two. But, you know, nobody can understand the BCS formula. I didn't really understand the BCS yeah. formula, and I covered this for a living. I do understand the committee. I don't always agree with them, just like we talked about the Oklahoma-West Virginia thing earlier. But I understand the concept of 12 people getting in a room. And, and look how quickly, by the way, and this really surprises me, the whole sport in less than three years has totally shifted the way we look at ranking teams. Uh, what happened this weekend, Michigan loses to 20-point underdog Iowa and doesn't drop would have been so beyond comprehension in the, in the, just the whole history of the sport. You lose, you drop in the polls. That's the way it works. And the committee has already conditioned people to say, well, they still have one of the four best resumes. Uh, that's a drastic change. And people have picked up on it and accepted it pretty quickly. So whether you agree with the committee or not, I actually think it's working out pretty well. All right. Next. Joe Owens, Cary, North Carolina. Stuart and Bruce, I keep reading speculative articles connecting UNC coach Larry Fedora with the potential Baylor opening. After weathering the worst of the UNC academic scandal, why would Fedora step into the hot, wet mess that is Baylor football? I would also argue that UNC has a potentially easier path to the playoff than Baylor for what it's worth. Uh, he's a Texas guy. He was an old Texas high school coach. He played college football in the state of Texas. I just think he's more comfortable there. Um... That's my hunch. I could be proven wrong. but uh... And while he would be stepping into a mess, there's no question about that, the NCAA has already said there's not going to be a bowl ban, there's not going to be any sort of sanctions. You'd be dealing with the headline and the scandal, but you wouldn't be... Which are significant, which are very yeah. significant. You're also probably dealing with two lost recruiting classes back-to-back, which is going to catch you on the back end. And you're dealing with a divided fan base, many of whom are still uh, very loyal to Art Bryles and, and want to continue... Because let's say they do hire Larry Fedora. Let's say they hire anybody who's not from the Art Bryles tree. Whoever that person is is not going to run the Baylor offense that they know and love from the last seven or eight years. And that's going to rub some people the wrong way, much like I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, I can give you a good example. I'm right outside Leach's house right now. When Leach, when Leach got run out at Texas Tech, you know, Tommy Tuberville, I don't think he had any clue what he walked in on. Now, he tried to keep a version of that offense, and he brought a younger coach, Neil Brown, in to take it over. But, you know, it was a fan base that was split. Now, there wasn't, like, the nature of the of what happened was nowhere on the scope of what obviously happened at Baylor. But there was so much healing that had to go on from them to bring in Cliff Kingsbury in, uh, who was from Leach's tree, that they felt like they were united. 
So that was the big part of that. It was going on at Penn State until this remarkable run this season. James Franklin was definitely being held to the... Uh, Bill O'Brien was pretty well embraced, I think, because he came in directly after Paterno and had to deal with basically keeping that program afloat. But, you know, you could tell the first two years with James Franklin, there was a lot of skepticism about this guy who doesn't run a pro-style offense and is just completely different than the kind of guys we've had here before. Which is interesting. If you look at at Trace McSorley's numbers, he's actually having a better year now than Christian Hackenberg, you know, did the last couple of years. Well, everybody's sold now with the new offensive coordinator and Joe Moorhead. Everybody's everybody's all in now. They have bodies on the offensive line. They probably have better a deeper receiving core. I'd argue Saquon Barkley's better player than anything Hackenberg you know, had lining up behind him. But The most drastic example of this, and I'm sure somebody's going to write in if I don't mention it, was when Bill Callahan came to Nebraska after they'd been running the triple option for 40 years and tried to turn them into a West Coast offense. That did not go well. But it can work again, like, um, you know, when Bob Stoops got hired, he brought in, you know, Leach, and they were going to get as far away from what Oklahoma had been, and they won a national title in the second year. Well, it certainly helps in a situation like that where, I mean, Oklahoma had been dreadful for many years at that point. They were they were hungry for something new, whereas Baylor, uh, even though this season's not going particularly well, there's going to be... There's just I could be wrong, but I just think that it's not just that they've been successful. That offense just became the identity. I mean, it's literally a thing, the Baylor offense. It's now spreading to Syracuse and Tulsa and all these other places. And, and then Baylor sure. itself won't be running it anymore unless, unless Larry Fedora is willing to run a completely different offense than he has his whole career. Next. <laughs> okay, this one's specifically to you. Bruce, you've spent a lot of time around Texas this season. Everyone thought Holton Hill and Devontae Davis were NFL prospects based on good freshman seasons and good size and speed, yet their playing has decreased, and Davis barely sees the field. Any idea why? Uh, you know, it's funny. So I did the game last week against West Virginia. At one point, Holton Hill went off of the locker room to, for evaluation, and it was almost, okay, That you know, he's not as much of a factor. Like when, when Malik Jefferson had gone out maybe like 10 minutes earlier, you know, that's newsworthy. And Holton Hill was just kind of, a little bit of an afterthought, at least in terms of the broadcast and how it relates there. And when we talked to the Texas, when Charlie Strong the day before, you know, he talked about John Bonney and, and some of his, you know, they're still young cornerbacks and they're still young defensive backs, but I think it comes back to confidence and who, you know, who are guys, so much of it is, do they go into a shell if they've gotten beaten? I mean, I've done a bunch of games this year, Stu, where we talked to the coaches on Friday and they will talk about a guy who's either has gotten burned a couple of times and hasn't been the same player. I mean, I can think of three different cornerbacks, two in the Big 12 and one in the Pac-12 who fit in that example, who may have the talent, just they get kind of get shell-shocked after it. Um, so I think that's a big thing. When I, you know, when I talk to some other coaches about facing them, they did not think, and this is earlier in the year, they did not think they were played very hard as a defense. That's crazy that that would happen to a Charlie Strong team. Well, it was Charlie's team. Now, I think as the year went on, this group has gotten more confidence. And, you know, I thought they played reasonably well against Skylar Howard. And West Virginia has some really good receivers. I know West Virginia was down to one running back. But I, I thought their defense has gotten quite a bit better. It's just 
right now the margin for error in that place is so slim. And you're talking about a team. I'm not really trying to stump for Charlie Strong here. Maybe it's going to sound like I am. But, I mean, nine sophomores on that defense. There's a bunch of freshmen who are playing. I mean, they're a young team in a, in a, in a very good offensive conference. As you were talking about this, I thought to myself, man, do we talk about Texas on this podcast a lot. I feel like this has become almost like Horn's Digest or whatever. And just as I thought that, I opened up a new email from Kevin Smith who says, I love your podcast, but you guys have some sort of contractual obligation to discuss Charlie Strong, the Texas coaching job, and Tom Herman on, underline, every single podcast. Otherwise, keep up the good work. Sorry, Kevin. Stu picks the questions. He walked me down Holton Hill, and that's where I got it. Well, guess what? We're going to talk about another Texas hot seat situation for a second. How's that sound? David Perry. Bruce and Stewart, I was listening to Monday's podcast, and you mentioned that A&M is in a tailspin and still has to face LSU, which is trending up. If the Aggies lose to LSU, should A&M consider getting rid of someone? I'm on record as I think he's a good coach for, for that program. But these second-half tailspins, this one caught them late, obviously when Trevor Knight went down. You know, I mean, he's better than what they had. The question you have is, who are you going to hire where you think he's going to go in and make you, take you from a consistent top 20 team? You know who they think they're going to get. Just beat Texas to the punch and get Tom Herman. And there's our contractual obligation for this episode. Are you sure Tom Herman can do that? I mean, the thing about Tom Herman is he's probably makes more sense for A&M than Texas just because A&M recruits Houston so heavily. Everybody's going to recruit Houston heavily, though. Okay, let's say that what he said comes true and they lose the game. Here's someone to LSU. Here's someone's trajectory uh, at A&M. That first year with Manziel, 11-2, 6-2 in the SEC. Everybody's darling. They finish fifth in the polls. The next year, they go 9-4, 4-4 in the SEC, and they finish 18th. After that, post-Manziel, 8-5, 3-5, not in the rankings. 8-5, 4-4. Not in the rankings, and if they lose this game to LSU but win this week, eight and four, four and four, maybe they'd be ranked because the committee still loves them. But it would be the fourth straight year of not finishing above five hundred in the SEC. And by the way, Kevin Sullen makes five million dollars a year. Yeah, I know that you have to pay him a lot of money right after you fire him. If, you know, almost immediately you pay him everything that they don't. For his sake, he should probably win that LSU game just to be safe. It's crazy that this is even coming up again. It sure seemed like he had finally put this story to rest. But, I mean, they've lost the last two games to teams with losing records, Mississippi State and Ole Miss. But the question is, if you make this move, who are you going to get who you think is going to be able to go up against Nick Saban and, and win in the FCC West? We're talking about a whole different landscape than any of these other, you know, it's the toughest conference, it's the toughest division in college football. No, I hear what you're saying, but I also don't think the expectation is that you would come in and beat Nick Saban and go to the national title game every year. They just want fit. They want better than four and four in the SEC. Yeah, but if you fire a guy who, what's his record in, in since he's been there overall? Forty three and nineteen. You're gonna fire a guy who's forty three and nineteen when you hadn't had a top. Let's not. This isn't Texas. This is Texas A&M. They hadn't had a top. That was the first top five finish they had. In 50 years. No, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not advocating to fire Kevin Sullivan, but I understand the sentiment. I, I'm just saying, who are you going to get where you're just like, oh yeah, that guy is going to win bigger? You know, I know Chad Morris would probably love the job, and I think Chad Morris is a, ride, a good young coach, but you know, what do you you're ba- you would be basing it off of a couple of years at SMU where it's not like they've won big. They have they've had a nice win over Houston. Um, For the record, Kevin Sullivan's. Um, 
Well, I have to update it. It was 69%, his winning percentage coming into the season. And uh, that was compared to Mike Sherman was 500, exactly. And Dennis Francione, who, wasn't th- who was there five years, 533. R.C. Slocum was, you know, there for 14 years and won 72% of his games. And that was in the old Southwest Conference. Jackie Sherrill before that, he was there for seven years and had a lower winning percentage than Kevin Sumlin does. So historically speaking, other than R.C. Slocum, He's had more success than anybody there in a half century. And in a tougher conference than they've been in, certainly in a tougher division. So keep that in mind. Uh, okay, a couple more. Bruce and Stewart with Pitt's two wins against current top 10 teams and three of the four losses to top 25 teams. Can you assess year two of Pat Narduzzi and project the next few years of the program's development? Hail to Pitt and the Wanstash, marking Kentucky. I, I like what they've done offensively. Matt Cannon has quietly done a nice job. You know, Nathan Peterman's playing well. I don't know, it's touchdown interception. I want to say it's like 19-4, to 19-6. They have some, you know, obviously James Conner's a headline, but they have some good skill talent around that. I think their offensive line was good, so it's, you know, it's not surprising that it's been good. The area where they've struggled is on defense, and that's Narduzzi's forte. Now, he's he's been somewhat hands-off. Um but uh, we'll see how that develops. I know they have really good young secondary guys. I think he's been a very good hire. I think he fits well there. Um, the question is, how big of a jump can Pitt take going forward? What do you think? Yeah, I think they're heading in the right direction, and you're right. I mean, really, the surprising thing is Narduzzi's a defensive coach. The defense kind of stinks, but the offense has gotten a lot better. And uh, so you got to think – that's a good sign because that mean I would think they are going to get better on defense. I would be shocked if they don't. You know, it's a tough division. There's been a lot of good coaching hires in that division recently. Justin Puente looks like he's going to be a great fit at Virginia Tech. Mark Rick's now at Miami. So I don't know exactly what the ceiling is, but I don't know why they couldn't win that division every so often. Um, here's one for you real quick uh, about something you wrote about once upon a time. Matthew Gregg from Ottawa, Canada. Love the podcast. I remember in the spring, you did a podcast on Stanford quarterbacks' use of virtual reality to train. I think that was a year ago. Uh, my question is, as this technology becomes more mainstream, could you see schools using this technology to record actual games from the stand sidelines and sell it to fans? Uh, Stu, I think so. When I first got the demonstration back at the Combine in 2015, in, in uh, February 2015, one of my first thoughts was, you could have a, an amazing fan experience if you had Tom Brady narrating with what it was like, you know, what he was what was going through his mind on a two-minute drive in the Super Bowl or some of those things. You know, full disclosure, uh, I don't know if we're breaking news here, but, like, our old editor, uh, Teddy, has left us, abandoned us to go jump into the virtual reality world. And I, I imagine that company, uh, you know, Striver, is looking to – you know, tap into the fan market because that's a that's a big piece out there. We should have had Teddy answer this question, and you're right. People who listen to this podcast for a long time have probably heard his voice on here a few times. He's leaving us, unfortunately. This is his last week at Fox, and he, yes, he's going to Striver. And uh, which, by the way, at the time you profiled Striver, had one client. I mean, Stanford football was their client, and now they're this big, huge startup working with schools around the country. And Teddy's probably going to be so filthy rich within the next couple of years, he won't even talk to us anymore. 
Let me ask you, Stu. This thought came to my mind when, when Teddy said his goodbyes. If Teddy does become really, really filthy rich, would you feel if you ever were like needed money, would you ever go to him? <laughs> what, a, what a weird question. <laughs> if he's ever worth like nine figures. There's been a lot of you know life, life-changing uh, developments for Teddy this year. He's also just gotten engaged. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to impede or infringe on their growing family. Fair enough. I might ask him to buy me a sandwich at some point. Just as long as it's not, not an RV sandwich, too. Oh, there you go again. <laughs> the one, the only thing we mentioned almost as much as Tom, where Tom Herman's going to coach next year is Arby's. Uh, as always, please send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And if you love the Audible, and I know you do, please go on iTunes, give it a five-star rating and tell your friends all about it, and uh, subscribe. I always say subscribe, but I'm guessing if you got to this point in the podcast, you've already subscribed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.